Letter the Fourth of Leslie Castle by Jane Austen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Leslie Castle. Letter the Fourth from Miss C. Luterell to Miss M. Leslie. Bristol, February twenty seventh. My dear Peggy, I have but just received your letter, which, being directed to Sussex while I was at Bristol, was obliged to be forwarded to me here, and from some unaccountable delay, has but this instant reached me. I return you many thanks for the account it contains of Leslie's acquaintance, love and marriage with Louisa, which has not the less entertained me for having often been repeated to me before. I have the satisfaction of informing you that we have every reason to imagine our pantry is by this time nearly cleared, as we left part particular orders with the servants to eat as hard as they possibly could and to call in a couple of chairwomen to assist them we brought a cold pigeon pie a cold turkey a cold tongue and half a dozen jellies with us which we were lucky enough with the help of our landlady her husband and their three children to get rid of in less than two days after our arrival poor eloisia is still so very indifferent both in health and spirits that I very much fear the air of the Bristol Downs, healthy as it is, has not been able to drive poor Henry from her remembrance. You ask me whether your new mother-in-law is handsome and amiable. I will now give you an exact description of her bodily and mental charms. She is short and extremely well made is naturally pale but rouges a good deal has fine eyes and fine teeth as she will take care to let you know as soon as she sees you and is altogether very pretty she is remarkably good-tempered when she has her own way and very lively when she is not out of humour she is naturally extravagant and not very affected she never reads anything but the letters she receives from me and never writes anything but her answers to them she plays sings and dances but has no taste for either and excels in none though she says she is passionately fond of all perhaps you may flatter me so far as to be surprised that one of whom i speak with so little affection should be my particular friend but to tell you the truth our friendship arose rather from caprice on her side than esteem on mine we spend two or three days together with a lady in Berkshire, with whom we both happened to be connected. During our visit, the weather being remarkably bad, and our party particularly stupid, she was so good as to conceive a violent partiality for me, which very soon settled in a downright friendship, and ended in an established correspondence. She is probably by this time as tired of me as I am of her, but as she is too 
polite, and I am too civil to say so. Our letters are still as frequent and affectionate as ever, and our attachment as firm and sincere as when it first commenced. As she had a great taste for the pleasures of London and of Brightlemstone, she will, I dare say, find some difficulty in prevailing on herself even to satisfy the curiosity, I dare say, she feels of beholding you at the expense of quitting those favourite haunts of dissipation, for the melancholy, though venerable gloom of the castle you inhabit. Perhaps, however, if she finds her health impaired by too much amusement, she may acquire fortitude sufficient to undertake a journey to Scotland, in the hope of its proving at least beneficial to her health, if not conducive to her happiness. Your fears, I am sorry to say, concerning your father's extravagance, your own fortunes, your mother's jewels, and your sister's consequence, I should suppose are but too well founded. My friend herself has four thousand pounds, and will probably spend nearly as much every year in dress and public places, if she can get it. She will certainly not endeavour to reclaim Sir George from the manner of living to which he has been so long accustomed, and there is therefore some reason to fear that you will be very well off if you can get any fortune at all. The jewels, I should imagine, too, will undoubtedly be hers, and there is too much reason to think that she will preside at her husband's table in preference to his daughter. But, as so melancholy a subject must necessarily extremely distress you, I will no longer dwell on it. Eloisa's indisposition has brought us to Bristol at so unfashionable a season of the year that we have actually seen but one genteel family since we came. Mr. and Mrs. Marlowe are very agreeable people. The ill health of their little boy occasioned their arrival here. You may imagine that being the only family with whom we can converse, we are, of course, on a footing of intimacy with them. We see them, indeed, almost every day, and dine with them yesterday. We spent a very pleasant day, and had a very good dinner, though to be sure the veal was terribly underdone, and the curry had no seasoning. I could not help wishing all dinner-time that I had been at the dressing it. A brother of Mrs. Marlowe, Mr. Cleveland, is with them at present. He is a good-looking young man, and seems to have a good deal to say for himself. I tell Eloisa that she should set her cap at him, but she does not at all seem to relish the proposal. I should like to see the girl married, and Cleveland has a very good estate. Perhaps you may wonder that I do not consider myself as well as my sister in my matrimonial projects. But to tell you the truth, I never wish to act a more principal part at a wedding than the superintending and directing the dinner.
and therefore, while I can get any of my acquaintance to marry for me, I shall never think of doing it myself, as I very much suspect that I should not have so much time for dressing my own wedding dinner as for dressing that of my friends. Yours sincerely, C.L. End of letter the fourth.